You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. And it's interesting, as, as we approach the scripture today, uh, find your way to Mark chapter 3. Uh, there are really two ways in which we relate to scripture, um, two categories by which everything we read in scripture sort of relates to, and it's something actually I've picked up from Corey's teaching over the years, and, and I, I tend to filter things through this now. The, the relationship of what we learn about following Jesus and what that looks like for us as we call ourselves followers or, or Christians, however we refer to that in terms of our devotion to Jesus as our Savior, it falls into two categories. One is who we are in Christ. The whole issue of identity, over the last five years of teaching the Bible, I can't, I can't tell you how many times that issue of identity comes up because in, in our experience here in the world, there's a conflict between the identities that we hold. One is the identity of who we are in our original state, the state of sin, which every man and woman who is born on earth is born into a state of sin. We are sinners. That's what scripture is very, very clear, clear about. And, and we all have to deal with that issue of, I'm not perfect. Like, I get other people aren't perfect. That's easy. I can see all your stuff. Like, it's just there, right? Like, I get that. But to come to the point where I just go, oh, yeah, I'm not perfect. I have these issues. When I'm then presented with the idea that Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice for my sins so that my sins in God's sight are washed away, they don't exist anymore, what the word tells us is that gives us a new identity. And I think that's such a miraculous thing that most of the resources that you and I have in our growth in following the Lord devotional works, prayer time, study that we do. So much of that is focused on who we are, our identity in Christ. And that's important. That's important for us to know that we are not bound by sin anymore. We're now slaves to Christ. He's our master, our Lord. We do what he says, right? But I think the second category of how we process scripture and what the life of following Jesus looks like is perhaps underdeveloped in us, and it's the recognition of whose we are. We know who we are now. We're in Christ. We're saved. We're redeemed. We're forgiven, right? That, and so I'm a new creation in Christ. That's who I am. But I think the part that we have to start processing more through is whose we are, that I have been adopted by God the Father as a son and as a daughter, that I am now a part of this family that regardless of where my family came from, regardless of the, 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 the hurt or brokenness or the dysfunction of the family that I've experienced in the flesh, which we've all experienced, amen, I now get to be part of this family that has no dysfunction. And you're like, I've been to church before. There's, there's dysfunction. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's still the fleshly parts of us that we're trying to cut off. That's the part that we're trying to get rid of. That's why I think we need to focus on whose we are oftentimes more than who we are. Because again, when we think about who we are and that identity issue, oftentimes we get things skewed. 
and we start thinking about our faith in regard to us being the center of our faith and how everything we experience relates to me and my encouragement and my purpose in life and what God has called me to do and me, my, mom, me, 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 right? Like it's us at the center when the reality is, nah, it's supposed to be whose we are. Jesus at the center of everything. How do I relate what and who I am to him, whose I am? So what I want to look at this morning is, is, is as we read this passage of scripture, I think there's some real um, deeply ingrained thoughts about what this section of scripture means and relates to. But I want to sort of take a different angle on it and really start focusing our attention on how Jesus becomes the center point of this and not us. So turn with me to Mark chapter 3. If you're already there, great. Pick up in verse 22. We're going to read through uh, verse 30, and then we're going to unpack that whole section of Scripture this morning. Mark chapter 3, verse 22 says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, speaking of Jesus, He's possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. Real quick. Now, let me finish it, then I'll talk about it. Verse 23. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided... He cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. By way of reminder, on, bless you, on, on Wednesday evenings at six o'clock, we do our Through the Bible study. And typically what we'll do is we'll study through a section of scripture and then I'll pull from that section of scripture to preach on on Sunday mornings and, and focus on the gospel and encouragement and those things. What, what we're going to do is, is, as we move forward, we've gone through this section of scripture. What I want you to do when you come on Wednesday night is be prepared with any questions or confusion. In the sense that if I say something today and you're like, that doesn't make sense to me. That's great. I nodded and smiled because I'm at church and I want you to feel good about yourself, Pastor. But, but like, if you're confused about it at all, I want you to come Wednesday night and go, verse 24 didn't make any sense. Repeat yourself or explain better or do better, Lukeon. We need to know what this means, right? That's what Wednesday is going to be about is I want as many questions and response and interaction on these things as possible. Um, I find that to be important in our development. I can talk at you as much as I want, but if you're not responding and picking up to it, it does no good, right? So um, that's for Wednesday nights. Now, I wanted to start saying verse 22 to jump into this. The scribes, those people who were a part of the religious leaders of that day, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, uh, the, this ruling, religious ruling class of the Jewish people, they were looking at Jesus and the miracles that he was doing and the following that he was, was starting to build to himself, that people were hearing him and saying, that guy's got authority. 
in comparison to the religious leaders that we've been following, that guy Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, he's got authority. What he says actually has weight to it. It means something. It's changing something in the lives of the people who are hearing him. And, and what they're accusing him of is being demonically possessed. They're saying, Jesus, the only way that you're doing miracles at all is by the power of Satan. And it's interesting in verse 23 that he called them to him, meaning those who followed him. Everybody's hearing these accusations against Jesus, but he calls his followers to him and he starts speaking in parables. And remember how we've talked about this before, like the whole idea of speaking in parables, Jesus uses analogies, he uses metaphors, he uses little stories, parables, to explain a deeper truth. Now the hard part is sometimes the parables that Jesus uses to teach because of where they are in history. He hasn't gone to the cross yet. He hasn't died and risen again, right? A lot of times the things that Jesus says at the time to his followers, they're confusing a little bit. And I think for us, we have to stop and acknowledge sometimes the analogies or the parables that Jesus teaches, they're confusing a little bit. We're like, yeah, somebody told me to read the gospel of Mark and I just, I don't get some of this stuff. Hey, that's okay. That's why we come together in this setting is that hopefully someone can stand up and go, actually, here's what that means. Now, in relationship to what we're looking at, the whole concept of blasphemy is sort of what this uh, revolves around and lands on. And I think oftentimes this scripture has led many people down the path of believing that blasphemy and this phrase, the unforgivable sin, is something that you or I could say. That somehow if I said, Jesus, I reject you, we think that that's somehow unforgivable or we're going to be struck by lightning or something like that, right? Or even if we look at the scripture and say, no, it's, it's the rejection of the Holy Spirit. So that when I'm convicted of some sort of behavior or sin, when I reject that conviction, that somehow I can't be forgiven. Whoever, who, who grew up in the church? Just a quick poll, like who actually grew up in church? Great, okay? So a lot of us probably as kids, if you grew up in the church and heard this verse at all, late at night in your bed, if you're like me at all, at one point, you wanted to test the fates a little bit. And you're just like, this is not gonna end well. Jesus, I don't believe in you. And you're like, you, you messed around with this dumb, dumb idea of like, is it really unforgivable? Am I the only one that did that? Probably, that's just... That's how I ended up here. Um, but, but that concept of the idea that blasphemy is something I say against God, the definition of blasphemy is something that's sacrilegious. Okay? So grab that first. Blasphemy is something sacrilegious. So blasphemy can be something that I say against the Lord, right? It, it, it can be cursing or using the Lord's name in vain. We're told not to do that. But see, you and I equate that to our language, don't we? Like if I say GD this, or if I use the name Jesus Christ as a, as a, as a, a curse word of some kind, right? That somehow that's a blasphemy. And it's not good. It's not something we should do. But at the root of it, in and of itself, that's not a blasphemy. What a blasphemy is, is um, it, it's misusing something that is sacred. Blasphemy has to do with a rejection of what God created something to be in its purpose and form. That's the idea of blasphemy. 
So go back with me to this, to, to, to this story and the accusation against Jesus that he's demonically possessed, that the way that he's doing miracles is because he's possessed by Satan. Verse 23, Jesus calls his followers to himself and he speaks to them in a parable and he starts asking these questions. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Abraham Lincoln famously used that. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. Jesus is just like logicking the heck out of the scribes at this point. He's just like, the thing you're saying makes no sense. I get it, you're mad at me. I get it, you don't like my ministry, all that stuff. But you just don't make any sense. And, and here's why we know that, that it doesn't make any sense, is that this whole idea of blasphemy that Jesus ends up talking about, this sort of sacrilege, is rooted in Satan himself. Like every type of rejection of God, disobedience of God, blasphemy against God, the misuse of what God has created begins with Jesus, it, or pardon me, begins with Satan. It begins with the fall of Lucifer, who was an angel, and who in scripture, it's related to us that he being a high-ranking angel with access to God was beautiful and apparently had great musical power, like all of these indications that we have of who Lucifer was. Selfishness and arrogance were rooted in his heart to the point that pride caused Satan, Lucifer, to say, I want to be above God. Now, understand that even the angelic world, angels, they were created with a purpose. They were created with God at the center and them to serve God. But they were also created as all things are with free will. And, and Lucifer in his heart said, I'm going to aspire to be higher than God. Mark down Isaiah chapter 14. Let me read that to you just so that you hear where this comes from in scripture. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This prophetic speaking out of the history of where Satan came from and the deception of the world is so apparent in all of humanity. It's the first sin that mankind was tempted with, wasn't it? When the serpent came to Eve in the garden and said, what about this tree? This tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What about it? And Eve said, we're not supposed to eat of that tree. God said, don't eat from it. And Lucifer said, or the serpent, pardon me, said, hmm, how come? And Eve says, because if we eat of it, we'll die. And the serpent goes, no. God's not telling you the whole story. If you eat of that, you'll actually be like God. That's why he doesn't want you to eat it. See, all of a sudden, the thought implanted is, what about me? How do I become the center of the story? I want to be like God. I want to know all things. I want to have power, right? 
I want people to praise me, 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 me. This is what Satan does. He brings in this narrative to our hearts and to our minds that says, you actually can be like God. You need to be the center of the story. When in fact, God created you to be a part of the story, but he has a distinct purpose for you that all centers around Jesus and his death and his resurrection, not your particular choice of pleasure or desire for your life. And so Jesus begins explaining to his followers through this parable that the logic of the scribes doesn't make sense. Satan who has this pride, Satan who wants to infect humanity with this pride, how how is it that, that he's coming against himself? It wouldn't make sense to his purposes at all. But Jesus continues in verse 27 and says this, but... No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. This is the part that gets confusing. I think the disciples could follow along, right? The followers of Jesus could sort of get the first part of the parable in regard to like, like a kingdom against, standing against itself, divided against itself, can't stand, right? Like we get that part. That makes sense. That's why Abraham Lincoln used it in regard to the Civil War, Right? One whole unit, if we're, if we're fighting against each other, we're not going to be successful. Like, we get that idea. But then Jesus adds this on, saying, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder... Strong what? We were just talking about nations and what, what is the strong man thing? That could be a little bit confusing, but listen. Here's the part that we need to know. Take notes on this. Mark down these, these scriptures. This world that we currently live in, the earth as we know it, In scripture, Satan is called the ruler of this world. If you mark down John chapter 12, uh, verse 31, you can go look at that later. John 12, 31, Satan is referred to to as the ruler of this world. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Satan is referred to as the prince of the power of the air. Meaning the one who has, has authority here in this world, the air around us. Satan is the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says that Satan is the god of this world, lowercase g, but still, he's the god of this world. He's the ruler of this world. Who's the strong man and, and, and what's his house? The strong man is Satan. This world is his house. Satan has authority for a time here in this temporal existence. God has granted Satan the opportunity to deceive any who would follow him. We see this throughout scripture as well. As hard as that concept is to latch onto sometimes because we think of God as good and loving and kind and merciful, and he is, but again, he allows Satan this opportunity so that you and I can make the free choice to actually love God by obeying him and following after what he has called us to in his son, Jesus Christ. Think back in Mark's gospel. This whole idea of the the strong man and, and binding him. Satan came and tempted Jesus for 40 days. Before Jesus went out into his public ministry, he went out into the wilderness, we read, and, and Satan went out and tempted him there. He tempted him with the things of the world. Why? Because Satan had it to give. 
It was within Satan's authority given by God here in the temporal world to say to Jesus, here, why don't I just give you the kingdoms of this world? Anything you want, they're yours if you bow down to me and serve me. And Jesus resists that temptation. In the flesh, in this experience that you and I are having, how we're tempted by the things of this world, Jesus in the same way resists Satan. He says, no, don't tempt the Lord. You don't have the right to do that to me. You could try, but, but you're not going to win. In that very moment, Jesus has bound the strong man. He has resisted temptation. He has shown you and me the model by which we can actually start plundering this world for God's glory. The moment Jesus resists that temptation from Satan, Satan's bound. He doesn't have the ultimate authority and power. Therefore, Jesus then gets to go into his ministry, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and winning people to the family, bringing people into God's family. And you realize that you and me, as we, as we understand Jesus' example, we get to resist the strong man. We get to bind him in our lives and bind him up and go, Satan, you don't have any authority here. This is not your house. This world might be your domicile for now. This might be your realm. But in me, you don't have any place. You're bound up because of the work of Christ. And my job now is to plunder this place. You ever think about our faith as giving Satan a hard time? Like Satan's goal in life is just to mess with things. God, has a, God loves you and has a good plan for your life. Satan hates you and wants you to die. Like can we see that juxtaposition that God being loving and gracious and kind provided a way for us through his son's sacrifice to come into this family full of love and acceptance and adoption. Satan just wants to mess with things. He wants to mess you up. and He wants you to die. He doesn't want you to have any good thing. And the way that he does that is by convincing you that if you're at the center of the story, getting what makes you feel good right now, somehow you're achieving something. That just, it doesn't work. It doesn't equal out. And so you and I have this same opportunity. We have this same opportunity as what Jesus has shown us in his example by resisting Satan for the strong man to be bound so that we can plunder his house. Our job as followers of Jesus is to give Satan a hard time. It's to make Satan's job hard. As, Jay, as, as Satan tempts people and 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 attempts to, to draw them away from the goodness of God, your job and my job is to give a testimony to the goodness of God. It's to show the fact that Jesus has changed our lives. It's to proclaim that, that today is the day of salvation. It's to go in and be the hands and feet of Jesus and go love people and bind their wounds up and care for them and love on them and, and then watch God's Holy Spirit working through us to draw people toward himself. Not to us, not to build up our thing, but so that God's kingdom is increased as it's established everywhere that we walk. That whole idea that God gave to his people in the Old Testament where he would tell them, everywhere you put your foot, everywhere you put your foot down on the land, the land that I've given you, wherever you put your foot, it's yours. Take possession of it, right? 
Aren't we supposed to be taking possession of the things that Jesus said, this is now mine? Jesus comes onto the, onto the earth and goes, no, it's all mine. I created it, and I'm going to bind Satan up, and I'm going to take it back for myself. You and I, being made in the image of Christ, pursuing Jesus, everywhere we put our foot, we're supposed to take that back. That land's supposed to be ours now. It's for the Lord. So when you step out the door of your house in the morning and you go to work, man, that's, that's the Lord's land now. When you go out to a restaurant and go, you know, are, are nice to a server and tip them well, that's, that's God's land now. You're just possessing it for the king, right? This, this is the kind of thing that, that Jesus shows us in this example. Now let's deal directly with what he says in regard to this issue of uh, blasphemy and how it's not centered on us, but rather centered on Jesus, actually, In verse 28, he says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now that's the first thing we have to stop and consider. The reality is this. If you find yourself in a season of life where you're silly like me and and did the little thing as a kid where you're like testing to see if lightning was going to come out of the sky and strike you down, those kinds of things, or if you've simply just chosen to walk away from the Lord and chosen to embrace the things of the world, sin your head off, and do everything that's opposed to God, the reality is, you need to hear this, you have never gone so far that you can't be forgiven and brought back into fellowship with the Lord. There's not a single thing that you can do that God can't forgive. There's no amount of sacrilege that you can commit that would cause you to be cut off from God's love and his desire for you to be in relationship with him. Jesus says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. I I don't know everybody's story, But maybe you've had that moment where you just stood and shook your fist at God and said, truly, to heck with you. I'm done with you, God. I don't trust you. I don't believe in you. I don't love you. I don't want anything to do with you. Maybe you've had that moment. Maybe that's what makes it hard for you to come back into this relationship where you're like, but I want what Jesus has to offer. And maybe you think to yourself, but I've gone too far. Can I just tell you what Jesus' word says? There's nothing that can't be forgiven. There's nowhere you have gone. There's nothing you have done that is outside of his reach and outside of his grace. But Jesus does go on and say, in verse 29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Remember, the center of this is not us, it's Jesus. The accusation against Jesus was that he was demonically possessed. And Jesus tries to explain, if I am filled with the Holy Spirit, doing the work of God, there's no way I could be possessed. It doesn't make sense even if I was to be fighting against the thing that I want, right? The thing that Satan would want. So this this thing that is unforgivable is rejecting the conviction of the Holy Spirit. If you in your heart say, "I, I don't want what God wants, I want what I want, that is blasphemy. 
where you reject the thing that God says, no, actually, I have a good plan for you. I want you to come into my family. I want to bless you. I want you to experience love and mercy and grace and acceptance. I want all those things for you. The thing that's unforgivable is if you reject that, if you reject the fact that Jesus died to purchase you and possess you for himself, if you reject that conviction, well, at that point, there is no hope for you. Because when you die, there are no second chances. Mark down Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. This is a convicting scripture that, that is good to have in the back of our minds. The Bible is incredibly clear that it says it's appointed once for a man to die and then the judgment. When our life here on earth has ended, there are no second chances. There, there's no way after that point for us to approach God to say, please forgive me now. Now I see. God says, no, I sent the patriarchs. I sent the prophets. I sent my son Jesus. And now I send out my sons and my daughters to go out and give testimony to my goodness. At the point that you die, it's done. You stand in judgment before the Lord and you answer for either your acceptance of Jesus or your rejection of him. It's a hard thing to, to, to say. It's a hard thing to, to sort of reconcile with the goodness of God and, and sort of the loving kindness and mercy of God. But it only makes sense when you consider what true love is. See, true love is not loving unconditionally. A lot of times we think, oh yeah, true love is unconditional. God loves me unconditionally. Does God love you? Yes. Is there condition to it? Yes. That you honor him and respect him. Because true love doesn't accept disrespect. True love doesn't get to be defined by itself. See, that's one of the major problems in our world today is that people who approach Christianity, approach the faith, they like the concepts of love as they define it. They don't like the concept of love as God defines it. See, God defines love as sacrifice and submission. We define love as accept me for who I am and what I am without exception without qualification. I get to define who I am and how my relationships work. That doesn't work in God's economy. And far too many people look at Christianity and go, I like certain parts of it, but the other parts that I don't like, I'll just define for myself. I'll just, I'll, I have my own form of spirituality. I'm spiritual, not religious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Bible is written by men. I don't, yeah, I, I don't find that to be an authority. I, I get to decide what is right and wrong. Okay, we'll see. We'll see. But what I would take is the warning of Scripture that says, mm, once you're done, you're done. When you die, when you step off this earth, it's it. That's heavy, but it's true. And it does nobody any good to be sort of pampered along the way to go, you'll be okay. No, 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 just be a good person. You'll be all right. It's not going to do anybody good. And so Jesus says that the rejection of the Holy Spirit it, it, there's, there's no forgiveness for that. It's a, it's, it's a sin that, it, that you are guilty of eternally. And he's answering those scribes by saying, there's no way that the thing that I'm doing, the gospel that I'm preaching, could actually be inspired 
by Satan because Satan rejects the Holy Spirit. Now, I think the big picture of parables is not just to illustrate Jesus' work against Satan. It's not just his way of trying to get to a deeper truth. I think Jesus uses parables to showcase his power and cause us to ask a question somewhere along the lines of, what am I trying to hold on to instead of surrendering to Jesus' authority in my life? I think that's what's behind these types of stories and these types of issues that Jesus tries to teach through parables, through analogies, trying to get people to understand the deeper spiritual truth. I think the issue is, am I misusing, am I blaspheming God by not using the sacred life he has given me for his purposes? See, because you and I were created in his image. It's called the imago dei, the image of God. That's how you and I were created. We were created, hear this, we were created to look like Jesus. That's why Jesus is everything. That's why he's at the center of the whole story. Yeah, but what about my individuality and what about my gifts and what about blah, 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 blah? No. Everything that you have and that you are is supposed to be centered on Jesus, looking at Jesus going, that's who I need to become. John the Baptist said it, less of me, more of him. Amen? Less of me and more of him. And so the question I think we have to ask ourselves, am I misusing, am I blaspheming the sacred life God has given me by, by not surrendering to Jesus' authority? Am I denying Jesus access to the deepest parts of who I am and not letting him take over and have control of our hearts, of our minds, of our bodies, and of our emotions? You realize Jesus is supposed to be in control of all of those things. It's his authority in all those areas of our life. And so the questions for us perhaps this morning are, does Jesus have access to your heart? Are you giving him your heart? Yeah, I'm giving him my heart. But I've got this grudge against someone. I know Jesus forgave me, but the thing that they did, can't forgive him. Can I challenge you a little bit? I don't think Jesus has access to your heart yet. Does Jesus have access to your mind? Yeah, Jesus, you're in control. You got access to my mind then why are you so anxious about things you can't control? Well, I'm just a worrier. No, you were made in the image of God to look like Jesus, who entrusts everything to the Father. You have anxiety you're working through? Maybe Jesus doesn't have access to your mind yet. Does Jesus have access to your emotions Maybe, but do you have some wound emotionally that still isn't healed? You still have some sort of like trauma that you're working through and you're trying to like understand why do I react that way and why am I driven by anger and why am I hurt and why can't I commit and why am I like not as intimate as I should be and like all these issues, like they, they come out of emotional damage and hurt and, and if that stuff is still happening, perhaps, I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but perhaps you haven't given Jesus your emotions yet. You haven't let him heal those things. Does Jesus have access to your body? 
Does he actually rule over your body? Well, are there things you're doing with your body that dishonor him? That don't bring him glory? Maybe we need to give him access to our bodies. The whole idea of blasphemy is this rejection of what God has created for a sacred purpose, sacrilege. God's created your body, your emotions, your mind, right? Your heart. He's created all of those things as sacred places, sacred spaces for him to have fellowship with you in. And if we don't turn those things over to Jesus and say, Jesus, you be in control of all these things, we're at that point of perhaps having to consider, am I actually blaspheming? Am I rejecting the conviction of the Holy Spirit to, to my perhaps demise, to the destruction of who I am? I think there's internal work that has to be done. I think we have to sit with the Lord and go, Lord, what have I not turned over to you? What, I have, not, what have I not given to you? How? How? Show me more. How can I give myself over to you and let you be in control of all these parts of my life? Because that's what Jesus did. He gave himself to the Father completely, even to the point of death on a cross.